Hello, and welcome back to Stern Chats, a podcast that explores the untold stories of the NYU Stern community. My name is Jack Parker, and today I'm joined by two unique guests, former NYU president John Sexton and current NYU professor Ogene Oyibororo. John Sexton is a native New Yorker born and raised in Queens. At NYU, John was dean of the law school before serving as president of the university for 15 years. And while he's most widely known as the pioneer of the Global Network University, he's also coached debate teams that won national championships, clerked for a Supreme Court justice, and received more than 20 honorary degrees from universities across the world. He's the author of Baseball as a Road to God and Standing for Reason, the University in a Dogmatic Age. We're also joined by management communications professor Ogene Oyeboro. Professor O, as he's known to his students, is also a native New Yorker. Born in Harlem and raised in Brooklyn and Long Island, Professor O is a former business reporter and graduate of Columbia University's journalism school. When he's not teaching at NYU, Professor O works at multinational investment bank Citigroup and is earning his doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania. I'm excited to speak with our guests today about their backgrounds, NYU, the corporate world, and hopefully have a little bit of time for baseball. And with that, I welcome everyone back to Stern Chats. Thank you, Jack. Good to be with you, Jack. It's great to be here with the two of you. John, I want to start out with a question about your prolific debate coaching career. After you graduated from Fordham with a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD, you decided to coach debate in an all-girls Catholic school in Brooklyn where you led them to five national debate championships. What steered you to become a debate coach? First of all, I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant uh, to start, Jack, by correcting you, uh, <laughs> but I will nonetheless do that because uh, it's important to the story, I think. Uh, you could have said... Uh, after after graduating from Fordham with a 2.1 grade point average. <laughs> I want to get that on the record right away because my, my experience is that, you know, you get your weaknesses out early. Uh, Absolutely. A lot of my justification, whether it's valid or not, for the 2.1 grade point average was that in those days you had to attend class. They, they actually at a Jesuit university took attendance for each class and you had a number of what were called cuts. And if it was a four credit course, you had eight cuts, but it would be four times a week. So you could pile those cuts up quickly. And uh, if, if you got more than eight cuts, the highest grade you could get was a D, no matter what you did on the exams. So my 2.1 grade point average was, uh, I think, primarily a result of the fact that uh, uh, I was rarely in class. Uh, and I was really in class because I actually started teaching at the age of 17 uh, as I moved into my sophomore year of college. The centerpiece was this high school debating team to which you alluded. Uh, but it's important to note that I, I started it at a point where um, many of my students, well, not many, uh, I think the actual number is four of my students, were older than I was. Uh, they didn't understand at the time. And by the way, it was at an all, a school that was for young women. Right. Uh, run by nuns out in Brooklyn. So uh, I, I've just come just yesterday, actually, that they, they had last September 
given me the, the whole group of them because I did this for 15 years and there are about 250 of these uh, young women now in their 70s and some in their 80s who gave me a birthday party last September uh, didn't know of my diagnosis because uh, I, I had at the time a diagnosis that it wouldn't have had me living very long. I told them after the party so as not to dampen it. But just yesterday, they gathered again for what they called my first, my first rebirthday party because my diagnosis now is that I've, not, I've got the, the normal longevity of, uh, of an 81-year-old, which is some number of years, but not months, thankfully. So these young women now, like daughters to me, uh, are really important to my story. And I want the record to show that I started with them as, as a sophomore in college. Why I did is harder to explain. That was your question, and uh, it's uh, it, it's not clear to me. I, I a lot of people have asked me that question, including them. My father died uh, when I was sixteen. I had been the national champion debater. I had been called to teaching by a great, great teacher, the greatest teacher I ever had, a man named Charlie who taught me for four years in high school. So I, I knew my vocation was to be a teacher. This will be my 64th year of teaching this coming year. And whether my dad's death catalyzed it or, uh, you know, I, I was not supposed to get on a subway train and go out to Brooklyn and start teaching high school women. Uh, what I was supposed to do was what my roommate did, who, you know, graduated at the top of the class, went to law school, became the managing partner at Cravath, Swain and & Moore, and, and uh, uh, became a great lawyer. And uh, that's, that's just what the family had planned, maybe with a senatorial position tossed in there because my father was a politician. So I deviated from that. I followed my passions, which is something I recommend to all my students to do, not necessarily as destructively as I did by getting my 2.1 grade point average. But that kind of rolls up how I first became a teacher. The, the masters and the PhD uh, in religion were both functions of my failure. A great man by the name of Timothy Healy, a Jesuit priest who had wanted me to be uh, one of Fordham's first Rhodes Scholars. He had recruited me for that purpose. It was very disappointed in me. And in my senior year, he stopped me on the quadrangle and said, uh, John, you've been a big disappointment to us. And I wasn't <laughs> going to deny it, you know. Uh, and he said, but uh, the Vatican Council's happened. It's going to be important for Catholics to understand other religions. And we're beginning a PhD program in religion. And uh, we'll pay you to go to school. We'll give you a stipend, give you your tuition free, pay you to go to school. You'll get your doctorate. At the time, I felt very honored. Later, I came to realize when I became an academic administrator that he probably had a program, no students, looked at the quadrangle, asked himself who probably has no plans, saw me, because I hadn't applied to law school or graduate school or anything else. I was just preparing my students for the national championship debate tournament. And uh, I accepted because my mother couldn't complain about my studying religion. She was a pious woman and got my PhD in religion uh, very quickly and became a professor of religion until I went to law school, just so I could continue working with my high school kids. And uh, John, uh, John, if, the, I might inter if I might interject, 
before we gloss over your early success, let's not discount the fact that you were a champion debater in high school. Now, look, some of us who were also grew up in Brooklyn, we did high school debate as well, but we weren't champion debaters. And your father was also a politician. Or uh, So could you just quickly go through that? What type of politician was your father? And what got you into debate in high school? Well, my... Uh my grandfather was the political boss of Brooklyn, the head of the Jefferson Democratic Club. And uh, he gave the key to my father. And my father was the political boss of Brooklyn. This is when bosses were bosses. And uh, right. and, uh, and then my father, uh, who suffered from alcoholism and gambling, uh, kind of squandered that treasury and he gave the key to Meet Esposito, who was the last great political boss of, of, of Brooklyn. When I say great, I mean powerful, not necessarily good. Although they did good as well as, as well as things that, of which they should have been ashamed. So that was kind of my lineage. What got me into debate was, uh, and since you ask it, oh, I'll tell the story quickly because you know you and I have talked about this. This great teacher Charlie stopped me in my freshman year of high school. And Charlie uh, noted that when the student newspaper came out each month and the Jesuits would have for each of the four years, the top marksmen, we were an all boys high school. They would list the top 10 students in each class with their grades. I was always lodged very comfortably in second place. I had about a 97 average. And not too bad. O'Connell had a hundred. No, no, yeah, it, it was creditable. But O'Connell had a hundred, and <laughs> and uh, uh, Charlie said to me, "O'Connell is a madman." Because Sean would run home each day and practice piano for a couple of hours, and then study. And Charlie says, "You must be a fuller person. Join debate." So it was Charlie that prompted me to debate, and he was not the debate moderator. He was a, he was head of the drama society, and it's an interesting thing that he chose debate for me, and probably saw I had a knack for it. And it was the single most important academic event of my life. My my education has come principally through the world of debate. Everything thereafter was a combination of learning things to teach my high school young women, because I wanted to be like Charlie. So I wanted to teach them art, and music and history and literature. So I would learn things and develop a curriculum for them uh, or the debate topics. So, you know, you uh, there's one topic for the year. It's, uh, it's, it's more rigorous than writing a doctoral dissertation. If you do it at a national championship level, which we always did, uh, Essentially, I homeschooled myself through those two channels because I was never going to class, starting with my sophomore year of high school. So I just floated through meeting the attendance requirements for everything that's on my resume, including the Ph.D. in law school. But I was pretty well homeschooled by myself. It's always best to learn on your own motivation. I'm not urging that all NYU students leave NYU and for homeschooling, but uh, uh, it's really good if you're passionate about learning. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, 
you've written and you've talked a lot in the past about how important debate and your experiences with coaching debate and doing debate and all of that was to your future success and things that you applied in your career. And you've said that the key characteristic that separates a championship debater from just the average debater is being an excellent listener. So could you explain how being an excellent listener translates to being a championship debater and how we can use that outside of, you know, not necessarily, not all of us are going to be debating in an official setting, but that sort of excellent listener component. Well, I mean, uh, the being an excellent listener is also uh, the key to being an extraordinary I thou love affair. So uh, it's not just to be debaters, Jack, but also in the most important domain of human life, you know, finding the right life partner and, and listening is a key to that and understanding that words don't necessarily mean what the speaker intends to the listener, that, that words are, have many different levels of meanings. And if there's a misunderstanding, the first thing that should be investigated is how did it come that uh, what what I said was not heard the way I meant it to be heard? What, what, what was wrong with my communication? Not wrong with my listener, but wrong with my communication. And of course, reciprocally, uh, whether it be in debate or, or in a relationship, why am I not hearing what this person I know loves me and I love him or her, is saying. So listening is a critical part of life. My colleague at NYU and at the law school, uh, Carol Gilligan, has written about aggressive listening. And I would recommend that people read her stuff about aggressive listening for debate uh, or, by the way, for very advanced legal argument. Let's say you're arguing to the Supreme Court of the United States and uh, you've got a case there. Right. Uh, as you speak as a teacher in a classroom, as you speak as a lawyer in the Supreme Court of the United States, you want to consciously be saying, how will the listeners be hearing what I'm saying? Okay. So it becomes part of your speaking to cultivate the manners in which listening can be occurring. But it also is critically important for you to listen in a debate to what your opponent is saying or to listen in a Supreme Court argument to what your adversary is saying, because you will not be able to answer their arguments. There's a third party judge, right? There's a, right. a judge in the back of the room in a competitive debate. There's a justice in front of you as your adversary is making his or her argument against your position. And if you don't hear what your competitor or your adversary is saying thoroughly, your answer will miss the mark. And the judge will see that. Right. So, so you really have to cultivate the, the skill of listening to, to win at the championship level in debate and argumentation before the court and frankly, to be in love. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, something that I know you and Professor O have talked a lot about in the past is this role of the college president in, you know, within the context of the university, but also beyond and giving people the opportunity to have voices that maybe in the past have not had the voices, or how do you balance these different components of giving voices to people who have historically been voiceless versus having shut down conversations that 
if everyone was just a better listener, maybe we could come to some sort of conclusion in a more civil way. Well, look, always becoming a, an expert on, on university presidency with his dissertation and his other work. I will, I will say to you that uh, coming from the world of debate and, and then from the world of religion and law, which are both, I'm going to say, we can explore this more if you want, listening disciplines in the way that I've been taught to approach them. Right. When you come from that and you become a dean or you become a president of a university, the first thing you realize is you're not doing your interlocutory partner a favor by listening to him or her. You're doing yourself a favor. You're expanding your own understanding. I I, I mean, this is not part when we talk about those that have been without voice. Okay. And we're not doing the previously voiceless a favor by listening to them. I'll give you an example. that's very clear. Okay. Uh, I've been given a lot of credit for expanding the scope of thinking in research universities about law because when, when I was dean of the law school, I, I, I had an epiphany, which frankly was born of, of the fact that I had a PhD in religion and had gone through the movie before and the ecumenical movement in religion. But I, I, I say, you know, why am I always recruiting professors who are Americans? <laughs> yeah, I, it, you know, I was, I, 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 you know, we hear the great law schools of America this is back 25 years ago. It's changed. The great law schools of America were, were, you know, recruiting the same dozen or two dozen great American thinkers about law. America's an infant country that derived most of its founding principles from outside the United States. And there are traditions outside the United States that have had legal and moral currents that go back millennia. You know, we're about to celebrate the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. We are an infant, an infant. And, and maybe, maybe is, it, is it a radical thing to say? Maybe there's some wisdom that we could learn from Confucius. <laughs> you know, right. Doesn't, doesn't seem to me to be a very remarkable statement. So so we, when we begin to see the world, not through the one window we're given, but through the facets of a diamond, that's advancing and elevating us. It's, it, it, now, the fact that it empowers previously unempowered, you know, there's the great song in, in Hamilton, nobody knows what happened in the room. <laughs> right, and I remember seeing yeah. Hamilton, Hamilton right. with, with my friend Larry Tribe, probably the greatest right. constitutional lawyer in the world. And at the at the the intermission, because that song is sung in the first act, I said to Larry, "Pretty interesting to have a popular song on Broadway that captures the essence of your tenure piece." Now, Larry and I have been friends since high school. I'm the godfather of his two kids now well-grown. Larry looked at me and said, what do you mean? What do you mean? I said, well, you did, he wrote his his tenure piece to get tenure at Harvard Law School was on what he called at the time, this is in the 70s, 
structural due process, which was essentially the way structures of governance and power were built to exclude. And and how if we were going to generally have a fair society, we had to be inclusive and so forth. And I said, that's what this song, Nobody Knows What Happened in the Room, is about. <laughs> you know, you, you got to be in the room. Yeah. <laughs> hey, John, John, before we, uh, if I might jump in here, uh, I think you hit on a few points. And I, I know we're going to get into a little bit of your, um, uh, some of your legal background and how it's influenced where you are now. One thing I wanted to dig into was a notion of empathy, I think, that you, you were getting at in terms of cooperating with uh, disunited voices. One of my colleagues here at Stern, Jonathan Haidt, he has a quote, uh, and I know you're familiar with some of Jonathan's work in recent years. The most powerful force ever known on this planet is human cooperation, a force of construction and destruction. For you, how is coordinating and working alongside differing opinions affected your ability to expand NYU as a global institution? Because it wasn't just, you're just not known for this legal component of yourself, but you it really metastasized into creating this modern global institution. How is that notion of cooperating and managing dissenting voices affected you? Well, first of all, uh, I'm a friend and a fan of Jonathan. He, he lives in the building uh, right. where, where I live and I see him and his children, his wife and their dog uh, frequently. And we've just had a lot of discussions about, about his work, which, uh, which I, uh, I, I admire a great deal. Uh, I, I worry that some misuse it, but <laughs> that's Jonathan, an understatement. Jonathan himself doesn't misuse it. Uh, I would also be remiss if I didn't point out that you have another Stern Scott colleague who uh, is a great, great professor, a great communitarian of NYU, who uh, I was part of recruiting to come from the Harvard Business School to NYU. Now, I think about uh, uh, 25 years ago, and that's Adam Brandenburg, whose book, Coopetition, hits the same kind of theme, right? So so if one can change from a, a negative sum game to a positive sum game in one's view of things, it changes the whole dynamic. And if you think about it, universities and, and the enterprise of thought that's incarnated in universities are, are inherently positive sum games. So, right. And at levels people don't think about it. For, 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 for example, I was one of the first to say that uh, university fundraising was a positive sum game. That if one university got a $50 million gift, it made it more likely that another university would get a $50 million right. gift and so forth and so on. Uh, but the core enterprise of thought is clearly a positive sum game because the more we work cooperatively to build on, on each other's thoughts, the better. And of course, that brings us back to this point that I, that I, I, I was discussing. You, you call it empathy. The, 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 uh, I call it ecumenism. So, so in 1956, in a classroom in high school, adjacent to a classroom where Charlie was teaching other people, a, 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 a heroic, and I should say the word later heroic Jesuit priest, by the name of Daniel Daniel Berrigan, who led the peace movement. He was one of the leaders of the peace movement in the 60s. But this was the 50s. This was 10 years earlier. And he wrote on the blackboard, 
the words, the Latin words, extra ecclesia nulla salus, outside the church, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, there's no salvation. And I went up to him after class and I said, Father Berrigan, does that mean that my best friend Jerry Epstein won't go to heaven? And Danny Berrigan, this was not some Yahoo. Danny Berrigan said, if you don't baptize him, he won't go to heaven. Wow. And my 12-year-old self was, I saw an injustice in that. And interestingly, my friend James Carroll, who is, he wrote a New York Times bestseller called Constantine Sword about Catholic anti-Semitism. He had a similar experience around the same age. Of, 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 of having a close friend who was Jewish and being told that that friend was not going to heaven. Okay, so that was the closed mind. That was 1956 in my church. 60 years later, I'm in the United Arab Emirates. The Pope is visiting the Gulf for the first time in history. And I'm talking to Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, the leader of the country, about the creation of something called the Children of Abraham Square, which now exists. It's about the size of Washington Square Park, and it has a church, a synagogue, and a mosque. And at the right time of year, you can hear the Passover horn, the bells of consecration, and the call to prayer simultaneously if you're standing in that that square. now, what, what happened in those 60 years? What we call the ecumenical movement theology opened us up to the joy and benefit of seeing the reality of the transcendence of human existence and whatever you want to associate with the word God through the many lenses of the religious traditions of the world and the positive sum game that that becomes. And it was a mentor that Pope Francis had had a mentor in Argentina by the name of Raimundo Panikar. Mm-hmm. Raimundo Panikar was what was called a liberation theologian. And Panikar said, and this gets us back to theme here, if it, 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 the, the key to the ecumenical dialogue is first putting yourself in the position of, oh, so the first thing, if we're in ecumenical dialogue is I want to, See the world as you see it, right? Not right. to judge it, but to get in your skin. Second, I want to see how you see me. I really want to understand your view of me. What Robert Dunn said: "If I could only see myself as others see me." And then, third, based upon that dynamic and and, and virtuous circle of understanding begin to discuss and and you used a word i don't like oh <laughs> you use the word dissent yes this is not like this is not a static majority opinion dissenting opinion we each have our sides and we war with no no this is a dynamic process of listening and understanding and and, and not finding some least common denominator it complexifies things. It, ma- it's, it makes things hard. It's, it's very simple if there is, oh, this is the truth. Oh, you listen to this. This is the truth. I am your leader. I am telling you the truth. You don't have to think. This is the truth. No, no. It, we, we, it, this is a dynamic, changing 
process of understanding. And it's never going to be perfect, but it's a process. Right. And, you know, as we think about, you talk about this ecumenical transition, and I've heard you speak about how, you know, 60 years ago, one of the main factors that parents of children, when they were getting married, disliked about their kid's choice and partner was their religious affiliation. Religion, nationality, for an Irish person to marry an Italian person, if you're both Catholic, this is race. But today, today, more than anything, okay, back then in 1956, 3% of Americans would object if a child or member of the family married someone from the other political party. <laughs> today, it's over 40%. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. And when you think about uh, Albert Hirschman talking about in the rhetoric of reaction in 1991, you have this idea of two party democracies and that ultimately you get into this dissolution of two sets of people that are divided by a chasm of silence. And that and, and what ultimately one, as Hirschman says poetically, and it's chilling to read that he wrote this in 1991. Each yeah. one saying about the other, how'd they ever get to be that way? How could anybody <laughs> be that way? Yeah, and you know, you connect this with your belief that the university and these educational institutions are perhaps the last great hope or the last best hope for the world to move beyond where we have this rise in absolutism and a growing unwillingness to accept fact and reason as the basis for conversation. And I'd be curious to know, since you know you wrote about that and have thought about what Albert Hirschman had talked about, have you seen that change? Do you still believe that the educational institution and universities and colleges are our last best hope? Or are there some dark horse candidates that you see as potential opportunities for another best hope? I've begun to think in, in, in strange ways. And I don't even think, oh, and I've got a chance to talk about this. So let me just lay this on you for a moment here and then come directly to your question in the context I said. So I'm beginning to think about the fact that we, we, we have a duty to hope. Mm. As it becomes harder and harder to hope, uh, I think the only way ultimately we will get to the world we all would like to see is is if we continue to hope and act upon that hope. Dis despair it despair doesn't work. <laughs> uh, so I have recast the myth of Sisyphus. And now I'm a student of the classics and you know read read the classical. Uh, John text. John John, can you give the audience a brief history so they understand where you're going with this? All right, well, the myth of Sisyphus is classically introduced by saying Sisyphus, a character in Greek mythology, was condemned. It's always used the word condemned, was, was condemned to rolling a rock up the hill. And each time he came close to reaching the top of the hill, the rock would roll down and he would have to go down to the bottom and start again and at the bottom. And, and this was, a, the implication was an unending process. Well, I have 
embraced and and I encourage my students and my family to embrace the role of Sisyphus. Because we, we're in hard times. Since, since I wrote uh, the book to which you alluded, uh, which is about four or five years ago, that was Standing for Reason, uh, in which I made the argument for universities, and in particular, what I call the ecumenical university, and I'll come back to that in a moment, as the last best hope. And I still think it's the last best hope. Uh, there are no dark horses. <laughs> there are dark spots in the university. Light writes about some of them. And, uh, I see some of them, but uh, things have gotten worse. And I, 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 I would call your attention to what some people would call the conclusion to the book "Standing for Reason," which is titled "Being Worthy of Lisa." And the one thing. My late wife, Lisa, the great love of my life taught me was those of us that are imbued with hope for a better world can never stop hoping. We can never stop rolling the rock up mm. because if we stop rolling the rock up, it will never get to the top. And we, I love that. we all have to continue the effort. Whatever the headwinds, how many times it rolls down, however hard it gets, no matter how many uh, justices of the Supreme Court seem locked in an anti-intellectual disregard for the traditions and rules of law, we must continue. We have a duty to hope. Now, I will not make an argument that universities are perfect. In Standing for Reason, I examine the data and and there's a, there's a movement out there, and it's gotten worse over the last five years. But it's a movement that goes back into deep trends that uh, Albert Hirschman spoke about in 1991, and that I began speaking to the deans about as early as 2002. And, and that was the I I remember speaking to President Clinton about it in, in the mid 90s when Newt Gingrich was was. Uh, threatening to close down the government. And the president said to me, they couldn't do that. The people will lose faith in the government. And I said, Mr. President, remember these words, Texas school board elections. Okay, four words. Why did I bring that up? Because by then I had been studying the relationship of government and religion in the United States for 20 years. And, uh, I knew that the textbook industry was controlled out of Texas because right. of the number of textbooks that Texas buys. There are a few key states, right? And I had seen the phenomena of Texas school board elections, which are microscopically low turnout elections. And, 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 and how those elections thereby could be won by very small, zealous minorities who then, by virtue of winning those elections, controlled the entire textbook industry for the United States and the way evolution was treated and so forth. Mr. President, I said, there are people out there and they want to undermine the faith in the institutions of our country precisely because they want to turn down. They will suppress votes. They also want to turn down 
interest in voting, belief in voting. I mean, look what's going on now. It is a systematic attempt to undermine all of our institutions. And I remember saying to the deans back in 2002, our churches, our government, our businesses by then, that was the year of Enron, all of them have lost the faith. And soon it will come to educators. Now, John, I think you made a... That was in 2002. It's you're making a you 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 essentially made a well-assessed, reasonable, seemingly moderate, but critical assessment just 20 years ago, right? But today, that position that you just made might be seemed as extreme, or essentially beholden to one political party. And to just you know go back to this notion of rhetoric of reaction. Why do you think that's changed in this country? Why has your position, which I suspect many would agree with, become a seemingly extremist perspective? Well, well, first of all, let me be clear about my position. <laughs> right. <laughs> don't let me define that. Don't let me define <laughs> your point of view. I agree with it, but don't let me define it. But, so, but, but my, my, my position is that institutions <clears throat> like human beings tend to be flawed. They're not perfect. Right. But institutions, if used appropriately, can be tremendous instruments for leveraging good. So I am an institution believer. Okay, you don't serve as a dean for 14 years and a president for 14 years. And then in the years subsequent, try to build institutions for refugees and the other work that I've done. if you don't believe in the leveraging power of institutions. Okay. So, so I start with that. And I start with the fact that by and large, uh, most of the people in institutions are striving to do good as they see it and are doing good. Okay. So, uh, I, I start with a very positive view. I, I cannot defend the Supreme court of the, uh, 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 uh that exists today. I lost my ability to do that two years ago. But six years ago, when I gave the Supreme Court Historical Society speech, I described a Supreme Court that I could defend and that I thought the court still could be. It turned out not to be that. Okay, so we're in a period of darkness. We need the Irish monks as we did in the Middle Ages. Okay, <laughs> we have a duty to hold, duty to hold up the ideal. Okay, so, right. so, uh, uh, there, what I was saying is that there'd been a systematic attempt to undermine the public's faith in institutions. And I would say, oh, that is not confined to a political party at this point. I mean, I mean, there is a pervasive lack of faith in institutions uh, right. on both sides of the aisle. And I, uh, uh, I just articulated a lack of faith in the present Supreme Court. So, uh, you know, this is a calamitous situation. Yeah, we're. I think we're at a what is it? We're at a low. I think we're at like twenty-seven percent still believe in institutions writ large. I think that was like right. a five thirty-eight study from last year. And and the university, you, you, you know, is under attack, and 
some of the attack is justified. I mean, so I've said to some of my colleagues, you know, please, this conversation is beginning to feel and and, and looked, if an outsider wouldn't see it, like a Saturday Night Live skit. You, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm with you on what you're trying to do here, but, you know, let's, you have to be very, very careful about arming those who will use your statements or your acts or your truths for nefarious purposes. You may not mean that, but be careful. Uh, And and, uh, I'm very proud, for example, the fact that in in the two years of my presidency where there there was, I think, relatively small group of the faculty that would would have loved to have been in battle with the press. We just unilaterally disarmed. We never answered them. We let them punch themselves out, let the reasonable faculty come forward. And in the end, everything worked out fine because I was not going to give those that would love to have a battle between the NYU president and some of his faculty that instance. I wasn't going to give them that example because it was a higher thing, much more important than whether I felt good at a particular night that was at stake. It was the university. And and the university, and I try to describe the kind of university, both of the traditional variety, not surprisingly, Jack, it's modeled on competitive debate <laughs> and the change of ideas and listening, uh, and what I call the ecumenical university, which is more like what NYU became as a metaphor for New York City. These can be, can be. And if enough people of goodwill get behind the concepts as described, will be the antidote. It's the only hope. Yeah. And, you know, I think when we look at NYU as one of the elite institutions that's in the center of a city that in a lot of ways was a great experiment where you have neighborhoods across the city that represent every country in the world, every culture, every religion, you can walk five blocks one way or another, and you're at a completely different, you know, subsection neighborhood of New York. And ride the subway. Right. You're riding on the subway. And, you know, how do we, within the confines of these institutions, how do we embody what New York has for the most part succeeded at creating, which is you can have a subway car full of a hundred people that everyone has a completely different story and background, but at the end of the day, you go up to them and they all consider themselves New Yorkers. So how do we create that with education and around these institutions? Well, the first thing we do is we don't claim New York is perfect because it's not. Uh, (laughs) And uh, even even though, uh, you you know, I've gone the world carrying this accent proudly and uh, uh, once told, uh, of a, a packed cathedral in Edinburgh uh, to take out their phones and turn on records so that they could hear English spoken the proper way. <laughs> Good New York accent. Uh, uh, you know, so I, I take a second seat to none as a fan of New York. I couldn't breathe the air most other places. Uh, the the uh, It's not a perfect city and uh, lamentably, uh, some NYU graduates uh, uh, ha- have been at the helm, and not all have uh, performed as well 
as the great NYU graduate Fiorello LaGuardia did when 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 he was mayor. <laughs> so so uh, and 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 one uh, Rudy Giuliani is one of the first two inductees into my NYU Hall of Shame. Uh, so uh, the other <laughs> the other inductee being Jared Kushner. Uh, this is hilarious. This and is hilarious. I have, That's I fantastic. Personally, yes. uh, but, but in any case, uh, the uh, New York City should, first of all, give us hope. New York City is, in a way, proof of proposition, the way you describe it. You describe it beautifully. It's the first city in the world to have a neighborhood for every country in the world, populated by people that had been born in that country. Forty percent of the citizens of New York City were born outside the United States. Think about that. So New York City, in a way, proves that the world can work this way. Right. And I think, you know, when you have when you look at New York and I'm a native New Yorker as well. So I'm I look at the imperfections of the city as the things that give it its best qualities and that allow us to continue to evolve. And being able to reflect that within a university or a setting of an institution is right acknowledging these failures and these imperfections and using them as how do we improve going forward yeah i, I you know jack uh, you put that so well <laughs> charlie used <laughs> to you. say uh, uh you, you know if, if if you're going to sin and we're all going to sin he would say boys sin worthily sin worthily <laughs> Sin in a good cause. And, and, you know, you could see New York as sinning worthily, you know. But the sin amplifies the joy of virtue, you know, when you can see. When you see see New York as, you know, after 9-11 or during Sandy or whatever, displaying a higher form of humanity, it gives us what the great Jesuit philosopher Teilhard de Chardin called point omega it's the it's that for which we can hope and and uh, uh i think you're right in seeing and i'm giving solace by the fact that we we've done this theologically if we could do it theologically we should be able to do it in the secular domain and john i, I think it's really important for us to raise this point i think broadly that you're making you were one of the first institutional leaders of a major university that I met that was particularly openly religious. That is seems to be a vestige of a bygone era. Now, we both went to Jesuit institutions. That's not unique in those circumstances. But how is that your background, your academic, your personal, your spiritual background impacted you as not just the leader of the institution, but just a leader generally? Well, I... Joe McShane, the president of Fordham, for which, as Jack said, I have several degrees, always, always referred. First of all, he referred to himself as my confessor. In fact, he would say he was one of my two confessors because I had so many sins I needed to. But but then he would add that I was the the leader when I was at the time of the largest Jesuit university in the world. He would refer to NYU that way. Now, uh, I took that as a great compliment, not because I'm a religious triumphalist. Right. Uh, the most extraordinary person I ever met, Lisa 
was slash is Jewish. We've raised all of our family Jewish, including all the children and grandchildren. Uh, so I've never been captured by that phrase of Danny Berrigan's extra ecclesia nulla salis, outside my church, there's no salvation. I've never attempted to Catholicize. You know, when John Kennedy ran for president, a big issue, which was resolved only in the West Virginia primary, that was the key primary that catapulted him to the Democratic nomination. But the issue was the Pope will be running the United States. Right. And, and, and there was never there was never an issue with anyone. I, I never heard it raised even by the most aggressive of critics that I was attempted to Catholicize NYU. Quite the opposite. Uh, but by bringing religion to the forefront, encouraging the work of Yehuda and Holland, for example, and bringing the Jewish and Muslim communities of NYU together, uh, building the Global Center for Spiritual Life, right as part of the Student Center. That was an affirmation of, of uh, and, and, and here we get more to my course, Baseball as a Road to God, because the, 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 a lot of people see that as a course about baseball. And, and, and Major League Baseball is making its, it, the first documentary it's producing. There have been a lot of documentaries about baseball. But Major League Baseball will be bringing out in October uh, a documentary based on baseball as a road to God. The book. Congratulations. That's I, amazing. I'm looking forward to what they do with it. They, they, <laughs> they've taped me teaching a wonderful group of students who were willing to sit there for it. Right. And it's with me. Uh, uh, they've taped 20 hours with me, but that'll only be 20 minutes of a two-hour documentary. But it, it'd be fun to see what comes out of it. But the point is, a lot of people think about that as a course in baseball. The students that take it or the people that read the book see that it actually is an argument about the nature of religion. And I try to strip religion of doctrine. That's not the nature of religion. That's the the con condemned to failure attempt to intellectualize something that's ineffable. Uh, to, uh, it's certainly not about hierarchy and power. Anybody that looks at my church can see that it was the Council of Constantinople in 313 that essentially took the structure of the Roman Empire and mirrored it. The Pope is the emperor, the, 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 the uh, cardinals are the curia, and, 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 and it's a potency, a, a, a potentate. Uh, uh, it's a monarchy. Uh, just as the Roman Empire was. So it, it, where is the essence of religion? It's in, it's in the, the ineffable liturgical moment where one touches experientially that which is beyond. Now, to bring that back to your frame, oh, it, isn't knowledge... And knowledge across, the, not just conceptual knowledge, but experiential knowledge. So the joy of music, you know, Leonard Bernstein said, music has no meaning. No meaning you can put in concept, but it's got deep meaning that can move you. 
you know, at, at, at the depths of human experience that could cause you to touch something beyond. Same with great art and so on, poetry. So yeah, it, calling us to that level of what defines us as human, to the deeper level, the transcendent level, the, 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 the real meaning, I think is at the essence of a university. Right. And uh, it, it can be secular. There's, there's nothing denominational about that. To say that there is something about O, there is something about Jack that calls upon me to acknowledge them as deeper than what I see. And that's the essence of what we do at a university, I think. Right. And yeah, and I think not to digress into a deeper conversation about baseball, but I, I've i come to understand that you're a big fan of the Yankees and a big, uh, <laughs> a, you have a lot of appreciation for the game of baseball and not just at a surface level, but I think it really plays into what you're saying is the nuances of the game and how it's this delicate dance. And if you're a true fan of baseball, when you watch the game, you have the pitcher and the catcher, you have the batter, you have the sequence that begins every single play that happens in the field, but you also have this incredible balance that happens on the actual diamond of all of the other players that aren't actually touching the ball or reacting directly to it, where you have a cutoff man that has to move across. You have, you know, backups and all of these different components of it. And when we think about baseball, it's at its core, a game of failure. How do we take, how do you view this game of where if you succeed 30% of the time, you're a hall of famer. And how do you take that perspective and translate it to either religion or educational institutions and how we can create this ecumenical debate? So first, just to make sure, uh, you know, since this podcast uh, lives into perpetuity, uh, and I should say that in the visual you've just put on a Yankee hat. Uh, <laughs> nice touch. I became a Yankee fan in 1969. So there is in my life before 1969 and after 1969, read the chapter on conversion in baseball as a road to God as to why I became a Yankee fan. It was an act of love for my son who was born that year. And I knew that more than giving him a religion, I would be giving him the teams for which he rooted. Right. And the the Dodgers were gone and the Mets, even though it was their miracle year and they won the World Series with Novo and didn't have and the fifties Catholic in me was called to the monuments and the hagiography of Ruth and Garrick and so forth. And uh I wanted to give him something of an institution. Getting back to okay, that's the institution. Uh and so I went through the painful thing that was helped by the fact that the Yankees were even worse then than they are this season. <laughs> we were just talking yeah, about we're... that beforehand. The, the, the best player that year was a guy named Roy White. It was not Aaron Judge, believe me. And, uh, <laughs> if, if the people then played to the back of their baseball cards, it was a last-place team, and it was a last-place <laughs> team. But, uh, but it, the, the Yankees are dwarfed 
by the real Brooklyn Dodgers. The, the, right. You know, there are no Dodgers after 1957 in my yeah. life. Uh, there were Dodger players like Kopex that I continued to root for, but I've never recognized it. It's a church in schism <laughs> until they return. <laughs> they're, they're condemned to the suffering. So, so, but your question is, 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 is a good one. And, and uh, let me make just one connection of many and invite you uh, stern student that you are uh perhaps to challenge yourself and take baseball as a road to God, which I'm offering this fall. Uh, oh, really? The, uh, the, uh, the thing about baseball, and I experienced it just last night at yet another 2023 awful Yankee game. <laughs> the Rays game. You went to the Rays game. <laughs> I sat there, no, I, I scheduled myself for five of the seven games this week, oh, and the chances are they will at best go two and five. That's a best case scenario. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're already well on their way. But the, my friend who was there with me said to me, Do you enjoy a game like this? And I said, Absolutely. And he said, well, how, how does one teach me, teach me to enjoy this? Because it seems they're, they're at best a double A team here <laughs> on the field. And, and at just at that point, LeMay, who made a great play at third base. And, and I said, you have to, you have to narrow your scope. You can't be thinking about the standings. You can't be thinking about the playoffs. You have to focus on the individual game and you have to begin to notice. That's the connection, the fundamental connection between baseball and and uh, uh, religion is you must, if you become a genuine baseball fan, notice aggressively. It's like listening aggressively, but you have to notice things you wouldn't ordinarily notice. Most of the action in baseball goes on between the pitches. A lot of fans only start paying attention when the pitch is leaving the pitcher's hand. But there's all the stuff about should we hit and run? Should the runner go? What is what what pitch should be thrown if the count is two and one as opposed to one and two? And and what, how do you position the players? And what goes on in that ballet right. that is never noticed by 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 the normal observer of baseball? Uh, I like the rule changes. I, th I think they're good. Uh, on the <laughs> other hand, I never accepted the criticism that baseball was agonizingly slow. Right. Okay. There was a lot of wasted time that, excuse me. I say, Theo Epstein, formerly of the hated Boston Red Sox. That Theo Epstein in the commissioner's office, he said, I created the monster, I will I, I will defeat it. And I think his rule changes have been very, very good. And not much has been lost at all. But uh, the slowness of baseball is one of its virtues. In a game where most of the action, and I completely agree, takes place in between pitches and you have all of these things happening, extending the metaphor to the rest of the conversation is, you know, you're at the game with your friend and he's 
asking you, how can I appreciate a game that's so bad? But how do we get people who don't have that inherent appreciation for the game of baseball or for religion or for these difficult conversations to pay attention between the pitches? Well, you know, you're showing the fruits of a stern education. He's jumping ahead. <laughs> you have brilliantly brought us back to the argument about the university being the last best hope. Mm-hmm. One, one has to get out the knowledge and understanding of the game. One has to say things. Debate is not an exchange of talking points where you go by each other. Baseball is not just what was the velocity and and the length of Aaron Judge's last struck ball. Okay, you have to get past the surface. So it's about education. And it was educating my friend last night. Right. I mean, the Yankees lost a one nothing game over the weekend to Baltimore. Right. That one nothing game, first of all, had the tenseness that close games tend to have. Some people would call that inaction. Okay? But to see the zeros pop up, to see it would would good hitters coming to the plate, to see the craft of the pitches, to see some really great fielding plays, principally by the Baltimore outfield, <laughs> but put that aside, okay? <laughs> a really great fielding plays. I, I, I mean... Uh, uh, it, it it was a remarkable thing to observe. And if, if, if one got oneself out of the triumphalism of, wait a minute, they're the enemy, and started just enjoying the game, because that's one of the liberating things. By the end of the week, the Yankees are going to be out of it. So, <laughs> right. As long as the Red Sox are also out of it, the world's okay. The, Amen. The Amen. Thing, Amen. The first thing that has to happen is we have to make sure the Red Sox don't get it. But then after that, we're liberated if we don't if, if, if we don't need to be the superior team this particular year. That's the floor. So, John, um, I do have a question, a, a, a tangential follow up there. You know, you're sort of talking, getting into the intricacies of a back and forth, a compromised society where you can have a free exchange of ideas. How why are not we having or what are your thoughts on where we are in society today? Um, in terms of whether it's the business world or the academic world, are we having serious conversations in a meaningful way that will get people to share their ideas openly? And if not, why is that occurring? And how could we possibly change that? Let me tell you a story that comes from my first year as dean, and it'll connect O to your question and uh, wh- why I, th- I think at least... We're losing our capacity to talk to each other seriously. So I had just been named Dean. I I was only at that point, eight years out of law school. And the rulers of NYU didn't really know me. Uh, I mean by that, the trustees, you know. So the Tisch family invited me to a Monday night football game. It was the first Monday night football game after they bought the Giants. Wow. And and in the box, the owner's box, were Barbara Streisand and 
uh, Dan Rather, who was the anchor of CBS News, <laughs> and, and people like that. And they had invited me and my wife, but Lisa didn't go to university events. And I had asked, can I bring my son, who was you know, a freshman in college? And they said yes. And so it was, we were there to watch the game. You know, they were there to watch me size up this new dean. And uh, on the car on the way home, Jed said to me, Dad, you're a comma person. You're a comma person. C-O-M-M-A, for those that don't understand the New York oh. <laughs> And I said, did you make that up? And he said, yeah, I think I did. And I said, what does it mean? And he said, well, didn't you notice at halftime when they opened the door to the owner's box and people came in and weren't in the box to pay homage to Mr. Tish, he would say to them, oh, uh, Jack, you know Barbara Streisand, you know Dan Rather, you know John Sexton, comma, the dean of NYU Law School. Right. Your presence in the box, Dad, had to be explained by a comma and a title. And that hit me. And I give a lot of workshops for new deans, new presidents. And I remember Morty Shapiro, the president of Northwest, and I called him up on something. And he said, you know, I use that comma thing once a week with my people. He, he mentioned this to me recently, by the way. But did he? Yeah, we spoke, did. yes, but go yeah. ahead, sorry. Yeah. So in any case, he, uh, he and I, what we're trying to say when we say that to people is you're Jack, you're O, I'm John. We are the left-hand side of the comma. And, and if you end up getting in a position that gives you a right-hand side of the comma, whatever it is. You have to remember, you may get into the owner's box at Giant Stadium, but it's not you. It's the right-hand side of the comma. Uh, people are saluting the general's car, not the general. Right. Uh, and by the way, when your picture is on a poster with a circle and an X over your visage, and it says regime change at NYU, not in Iraq. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not about you either. I mean, you should examine your conscience to make sure, you know, what in the criticism should I take into account in the decisions I'm making. But, but, but don't take it personally. Because you have to understand, if you're the president of NYU with 70,000 students and 7,000 faculty, you're a cartoon. It's one of the reasons why it took the trustees four years to convince me to move from being dean where I was a parish priest to being president where I was a cardinal. Because I knew I couldn't have the relationship with, with as you, Jack, just said when we took a little break, that you had not met an important person at the university who you might have met except the ceremonial things. Well, that person's a cartoon to you. As you are to them, and and uh, it, it, it's it's really interesting. People who become comma persons can become comma persons because there's some mission they're on. There's some something they want to advance, and this gets back to our conversation about institutions. They they they're they're given the honor and opportunity of of being able to use for a period of time 
because none of us controls what happens when our successors comes in. For a period of time, they have the leveraging power of an institution at their disposal. Right. And, and, and some, and I, I, I would say this is what motivated me. I was put on earth to be a teacher. I taught a full schedule during my time as dean. I taught a full schedule during my time as president. Probably more than most of my colleagues were teaching uh, in, in both positions. Okay, always four or five courses a year. Because that's my essence. And I wouldn't know, remember why I was doing the other if I didn't stay with that essence and stay in touch with students in the classroom and, and, and the scholarship I work on. Uh, but but uh, with regard to being dean or being president, I was on a mission to put on offer to the law school, to put on offer to NYU a view of itself, which it turned out in both cases the vast majority of people accepted. And that was very satisfying to me. Okay. Uh, but it was a mission. It was John, the left-hand side of the comment was on a mission. I wasn't in it for the title. My wife and I never went to black tie dinners. We never entertained in our home. We never accepted invitations to the homes of the rich and famous. Right. Okay. We, we, I, baseball games, football games, that's a different story. <laughs> like, you know, with my son, that's a different story. And they knew that. They knew that. But if the, if the same people, I never went to the Tisha's house for dinner. Okay. I would go annually to a football game. Right. <laughs> so, but, but, but that was John, the left-hand side of the comment they came to understand. Not the right-hand side of the comment. Now, how does that connect to O's question? More and more and more of our leaders politically, socially, in universities, are doing what they're doing for the right-hand side of the comma. And if you do it for the right-hand side of the comma, then you start making decisions based on what keeps that right-hand side of the comma for you. John, this is such a triggering conversation. You you are on top of this. I feel like you need a book on this. Okay, can you can you expand just a little bit on through examples, and we'll wrap up this topic. I, I had to interject here. This notion of people just not following their passions. You knew inherently that you were a teacher. You could change lives in that way, but you weren't pursuing becoming a college president. You were just pursuing changing lives and making impact in communities. What's gone on in our society to drive this notion of this, the wrong side of the comma? It's it's like a it's a it's a bastardization of any notions of the of the past. All you have to do is look at our politics, and this is not only on one side of the aisle. And you see, people are behaving to keep their position instead of using their position to advance some theory of, of, of the good for society. And, and it's, it, it, I have a protege. He's a dear friend. <laughs> yes. He, he is an educational leader. I'm not going to name the institutions that he's led, but, but he started thinking about educational leadership under my wing. I was one of his major references for the first and second of the positions he's held. 
when he got to the third and it involved leaving the second within a couple of years, I said, what are you doing? What are you doing? What's your mission? And his mission was to get to a certain level of title. And I said, done. I said, not only will I not be your reference anymore, but make sure they don't call me because I'm going to say, I'm going to say about them, you don't care a whit about the institution. You know, this is this. Now, I'm speaking to Stern. I, I, people I know, I, I, this is careerism run amok. This is this is uh, the the loss of of the common. You know, the Jesuits taught us to live useful lives. They said, live lives for others. The three of us here, even Jack, who doesn't have a Jesuit education, <laughs> we, we, gifted, we were gifted with a grace that we didn't earn. We were born smart. We could have been born dumb, but we were born smart. The Jesuits taught us, if you're lucky enough to be born smart, or whatever gifts, if, if you can sing well, if you can, whatever your gifts are, use them for the common. Use them to live a useful life and a loving life and a life for others. That has, and I understand part of it is environmental. The last 25 years have been lousy. You know, think of people that are 25 years old or 30 years old today. They, 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 it started with 9-11. You know, it, 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 along the way, you get 2009. Then you get COVID. You know, you, you, you're living in decades where an assumption with which I grew up, which was if I worked hard and had some talent, I would be able to do well. Okay. Now that was a, that was, that was only for people that looked like me, it turned out. And who were my gender, it turned out. And there were a lot of things that weren't good about it at that time. Okay. But, uh, you know, people had hope. Now I have to talk to you, as I did earlier, about a duty to hope, about being Sisyphus. Right. I, I, so, so I understand in that kind of thing, you, you tend to hunker down and say, well, let me at least make my life, my, me, me, me. My grandmother used to say, first me, then me again, be, be, criticizing this, I want to make it clear. She would say, what are you? First me, then me again, then my dog, then maybe you. You, you know, and that was a condemnation from her that echoes in my head. The first thing can't be about me. And and, and it turns out that uh, our society is, is, is rife with meanness. We've lost a sense of common weal. Leaders maintain, strive to maintain the right-hand side of the comma. And here's an important point. Leaders will not suffer pain to achieve a good which will not endure to their credit list. Right. And, you know, I. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give yeah. you, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to give you an NYU example of this, of which I'm very, very proud. Okay. The two really tough years I had out of 28. So that's a pretty good batting average. <laughs> Hall of Fame. <laughs> the, 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 
the two tough years were all about a decision we, those that were with me as well, made that we would incur pain for future generations at NYU. And we would go through a process of getting an upzoning from the city that essentially gave the university a gift of the right to build 2 million square feet in the core of the university, uh, you know, down on Mercer and where the gym was, Washington Square Village and so forth. Right. And we, we went through hell over that. Okay. And we knew it was going to be hell. And we succeeded. Now, one square foot of building right in Greenwich Village, when we started, is probably higher today, just to buy the right to build, not to build anything. You haven't done any construction, $2,500 per square foot. You multiply <laughs> that by $2 million. When we got that up, Sony, it was the equivalent of adding $5 billion to the endowment. Right. And now you have Paulson open. And it was dedicated in the last year of Annie Hamilton's right. presidency. Mm-hmm. Right? Yet entire and we knew that we and I and I wouldn't have even been there for the groundbreaking except that John Paulson, from whom I had gotten the gift that made the building possible, asked that I come. Because I don't go to university events because I, I think it's it's not my university. Okay. I don't own it. Mm-hmm. It's Andy's <laughs> and now it's Lindy, right. right? You you pass on the baton. Uh but but there was during the controversy a, 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 a town hall, and a woman stood up in that town hall, a faculty member, and said to me, "When will we inflict enough pain on you that you will capitulate <laughs> publicly?" Right? And, and I looked at her, and I, I'm not going to use her name. I, I I said, "Pain is not an argument. <laughs> Give me reasons why." This is not a good idea. Right. By the way, I can't resist dropping a footnote. There later was a unanimous report of the faculty and faculty skeptics endorsing it. And I think it started with the sentence, it took us 18 months and sifting through all kinds of documents to come to the conclusion that it's cheaper to build on land that you own than land you don't own. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, I, I looked at this woman, I said, pain is not an argument. Give me reasons. And I said, but even if pain was an argument, you got a bad break here. You got a guy that was taught as a child that crucifixion in a good cause is a worthy life. And that's another thing about leadership today. Leaders are not willing to incur pain that will inure to the advantage of who's ever in their position two, three times ahead. And and we're not going to get things right if we're not willing to pay short-term prices for long-term gains, think climate change, for example. Yeah. But, but there's all kinds of things like from education to food security, it all requires incurring pain in the short run. And we're capable of that as humans. We know we're capable of that as humans. We saw it from the greatest generation in world war two, but, but it's not part of the zeitgeist now. So you've got all these things coming together, the loss of the common, 
the, the, the consequent, I think, attention to self before others, that leading to attention to the right-hand side of the comma and self-aggrandizement. And, and by the way, it comes from a little bit from security, because if you have that label, it makes you feel good. You actually think you're being invited. <laughs> right. And and uh, the unwillingness to incur pain. I think that, that, that those are the four pieces that I would put in the puzzle. And, uh, you know, I know I'm talking to people who project to be leaders of institutions. And it's really important, I think, that uh, they think out why they're doing things. Are they doing things because of that right-hand side of the comp? Do you really need, oh, do you really need another gold star <laughs> to make you feel that you're worthy. I mean, I, I, I some have, people can't sleep without the gold star, though. Let's you know, I have nine PhDs, and and the guy didn't bend a Dropbox in my class at the law school, <laughs> and they all felt they were the imposter. Right, right. They needed, they needed gold stars. Yeah, and so John, I think it's really interesting, and I want to bring it back to Stern and NYU, and really tie together these ideas of passion and working and living and striving for something that's beyond just a title and you know in standing for reason you talk about charlie telling you this advice basically of play another octave on the piano and you know it's this idea of try something new do something that may not work out go for the thing that maybe didn't necessarily appeal to you at first or seem like it was going to make sense but that it all by doing that you ultimately are going to feel something and achieve something that you couldn't have realized if you had just been chasing, like you said, the right-hand side of the comma. And that's a really difficult thing, especially for NYU graduate students to wrap their head around, including myself, where, you know, we're in this constant stream of whether it's at the law school or in the MBA program or MFA, you know, you name it, these graduate students we're doing it because of passion or a insanity that is driving us to higher achievement and overachievement and getting that next gold star. So when you think about students that are currently or thinking about enrolling in one of these graduate schools and, you know, for the Stern tilt specifically at Stern, how do you, how do you view these students who have made this decision, how can they get the most out of it and how can they approach the education in a way that isn't going to lead them to just chasing that gold star and that they can enjoy that journey along the way? Well, I think that if you get to be a student at Stern, in the MBA program especially, or at the law school, or anywhere at NYU for that matter, you want to just stop a minute and notice the fact that you've accumulated so many gold stars, you've gotten to a gold-plated place. Right. And, and, and you should just say, okay, now let me ch change the question. The question shouldn't be, what's the next thing I must achieve what's in the in, in the dictated path you know so at the law school clerking at the Supreme Court getting into one of the 
cocktail party law firms, mm-hmm. you know, or if I'm at Stern, you know, being at this investment bank house or that corporation or, you know, stop and start saying, okay, now I've assembled my arsenal. Now I've, I, 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 I've proven at least in the first 10% of the race of life that having been gifted with intelligence, I know how to develop it. I know the finger exercises of using my intelligence and that's been ratified and it's been ratified because I'm in this place. Right. Hello, I'm here. And, 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 but so now the question becomes, how do I deploy that gift? And how do I find in life joy and fulfillment? Am I going to feel good about what I'm doing each day? You know, I, I, I have to say, and it may, it may sound crazy, I have not had a professional day in my life that I haven't enjoyed. Yeah, I, I mean that's a remarkable statement. I know, but you know, I used to be. I could say in some sense, I've I've never really worked for anyone, right? I've always had control over my time. Those are two precious things, but I've never really worked for anyone because my job was to do something I loved. And, and and in the two moments in my life, the two years in my life when I really did work for someone because I was clerking for a judge, you know, and the judge could raise an eyebrow and even a 39 or 40 year old man, because I was later in life doing law, uh, could feel devastated. OK, but I recognized every time I, I was talking uh, to, to one of the justices yesterday and uh, uh we, we were talking about how when you walk up the steps of the Supreme Court of the United States to go to your office each morning, every step I used to just say, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. <laughs> you, you know, and, and, and you have to do that when you're writing dissents as well as when you're writing majority opinions. But you're, you're lucky to be there. You're in the room with voice. Uh, so... I've always been blessed with that. That's what I would say to the Stern folks. That's what I say to my law students. Recognize that the question now is with the two sides of your being, and if if, if, if you do well in life, I, I don't mean financially well, if you do well in living, those two areas will be like yin and yang. They will be mutually complementary and reinforcing. And, and and that is your professional life and your personal life. I, you know, I, I think that's such sage advice for everyone that's stern and beyond, you know, and living every day to the fullest and really capturing the moment and finding the thing that every day you wake up and it doesn't feel like a job, but it's your passion. And it's something that is really hard to navigate right? Especially in today's world where everything is so um, traced and it's so opinionated. John, John is waving his hands in the air to get that out of here. Jeff. No, I mean, no, listen. No, it, it, hard. So, so here's a keep your needs low. Don't get attached to assets. Mm-hmm. Memories, mm-hmm. not assets. 
don't need things. Things are just another gold star. Now, you don't have to be, I mean, since Lisa died, which is now 16 years, I haven't owned a suit. Now, you know, that, was a, I, that was one of the first things I noticed about you when we met. <laughs> travel suit, expandable waist pants, and a somewhat maxing ja- ma- maxing <laughs> matching jacket and if i gotta wear a shirt and tie it's always nyu sweat so, right. so, so, but but keep your needs low don't need that stuff don't they, I, I, you know a, a person that spends I, I i mean i haven't spent as much in my entire life on my wardrobe as some of my friends have spent on one suit <laughs> a student a student gave me a gift of a pair of shoes i went to, to exchange them because i was yeah and i could have gone down to the place where i bought shoes and still buy them over on laguardia <laughs> and bought out the store for the price of this one <laughs> pair of lopes this is just another gold star but how do we reframe the gold star from being the thing or the right side of the comma? How do we reframe that for people that have their whole lives been driven by this materialistic, let's say, definition of a gold star? Watch a baseball game. Read baseball as a road to God. Learn, I have a t-shirt that... I have like 40 or 50 of them, but I'm, I'm usually wearing one every day. Uh, I didn't know if this was video or not, so I put on an NYU uh, uh, golf shirt. <laughs> you look good. Yeah. Uh, but on the back, it says, live slow. Going into Grand Canyon for 19 days. You know, you just got to go through some kind of reset. Yeah. You know, and I'm not going to say to you what's going to work for Jack or for O, but if if you don't start balancing that now, okay, at at your age, you're never going to get it balanced. And you're going to end up being one of these guys I meet in the diner who's, you know, uh, a law partner in a major law firm. And uh, 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 the, the kids are now grown and out and uh, oh the zest is gone from the marriage but boy a new love has been found with some paralegal 30 <laughs> and he uh, uh, it was just another trophy right and, uh, and, and it's time to leave the law firm and become a law school dean because they all think that's very easy there's a there's a reason why we run into emptiness if if if, if and it's, it's self-inflicted and this is where the connection to the transcendent and the meaningful and, and getting in touch with nature and and, 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 and and just engaging in whatever meditative or reflective, if you want a more neutral meditative, has a religious connotation for people. So reflective, that's a word a president can use, I guess, in the university. Uh, and, and, you know, to put a fine note on that, John, What's something you feel that you've learned about life in the last six months that you think you could share with uh, the wider community, not just Stern, but, uh, you know, young people, young and old, 
about life and what to focus on beyond what you just shared there? There, there has your perspective changed considerably? Well, you know, oh, you're, you're not being fair to your audience or maybe even to Jack because uh, it's a year ago, as you know, that I was told I had four to six months to live. Right. And, and uh, I went through uh, the fall semester hoping I would make it to do my last teaching in the January term. I taught in the fall semester. I had to tell my students at the beginning of class, I didn't know if I was going to make it to the end of the class. Wow. And uh, that they should drop the class if that was going to be a problem for them. I had a, a backup with me. And and then I went to, to teach the J term in Abu Dhabi. I wanted to do my what I thought was my final teaching there. Uh, and I did the three-week term and there I was still going and I wanted to make it to the birth of my uh, fifth grandchild. In Congrats. Washington. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, for reasons the doctors literally can't understand. I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't go into a, a, a test, you know, a trial, they call it medicine, because the, there's a bit of a conflict of interest with the people running the trial. They want longevity and I want quality. I'd rather have 10 good days than 100 that were uh, less than good. Uh, and uh, so I've, I'm coming through a period of long reflection about that. It's had a happy ending. Comes back to what Jack asked about playing another octave of the piano. It's had a happy ending because I'm the first person to be getting two novel treatments uh, for the relatively rare disease I have, and uh, it's baffled the doctors because it's uh, they neither was supposed to be a cure, but it seems uh, the, that not only am I still around, but now at least the disease is not detectable for a while and uh, i'm going to go mri to mri uh, but i'm coming out of a period of very deep reflection of, upon life and i'll just maybe close with this we as you as you know oh we're a family that goes into the wilderness a lot and i've been 20 times in the grand canyon and eight times i've done the river, which is 300 miles long, not always the full 300 miles, sometimes only half of it, but you're down there for nine days or most recently 19 days. And you're completely incommunicado and you're just with those you love and you, you're in the beauty of the Grand Canyon, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And if you can read this in camping literature, by the second day on, on, on the river in the Grand Canyon, you're on what's called river time and everything slows down, you know, and you notice things you never noticed before. And you realize the preciousness, for example, of water, uh, because you're in a very, it's real wilderness. You know, uh, this is not a four seasons hotel at night. Uh, you're sleeping on sand with uh, uh, the animals around you and so forth. So, so uh, a year ago, I came out of the Grand Canyon. I didn't know yet I was sick. It was about this time last year that I found out that I was sick and was given the terminal diagnosis. And a friend asked me the other day, you know, it's only one year. Uh, how, how do you, isn't it startling given what's been packed into that year? Because there's been a lot of emotion packed into that year. 
And he said, uh, what do you think of that? And I said, well, you know, usually you ask great questions. That's an A minus question. <laughs> the, A plus, the, A, the A plus question would, would have been, there are two doors, door A and door B. And door A is I come out of the river last year. I'm not sick. And I've lived another year. And door B is I come out of the river and I have the year I've just had. Which would I choose? And it's interesting because my kids and grandkids, we were talking about this at dinner after he asked the question. And everybody shouted, of course you choose B. Because it's been an experience and an intensity of love and friendships and uh, reflection that is not part of the ordinary life. And, and a game that we've played down in the river, because sometimes you're doing side canyon hikes and sometimes you're doing white water, but there's a lot of time when you're just floating and you have water fights and stuff like that and you jump in the water to get cool. But uh, you also play word games if you're our family or you play. And then one of the games that uh, I started getting the kids and then the grandkids to think about 20 years ago was suppose that biology were such that six months before you were going to die, your little toe fell off. So you knew you you were on the clock. What, if anything, would you do differently? Is there a relationship you'd want to repair? Is there a love you'd want to profess? Is there a place you'd want to go? Is there a food you'd want to taste? And and if you focus on that in that way, uh, why are you waiting? Why are you doing it now? Now, in all the years we played the game, uh, when I got to the real moment, okay, last August, and I, I thought I had four to six months to live, uh, but I, I, I gave the, the same answer in real time, in the real case that I'd given on the river, which is I would disregard weight control, and I would eat a pint of ice cream each night at the end of the day. <laughs> and, and frankly, in, in last August and September and October, I did it for about nine or ten weeks, and I gained 30 pounds. Oh, wow. And I did it with the doctor's permission because they said, you know, it's like a last meal. <laughs> this is not going to kill you. You can eat as much ice cream as you want. And then I kind of lost interest in it. And now that they're telling me I'm going to live, now they're putting me on a diet because they don't want, I'm a medical I'm patient number one in there that's taking these two. And they want to keep me alive. So I die of the disease that they've been trying to prevent. They want to know how long they can keep it at bay. They don't want me dying of a heart attack from too much cholesterol from ice cream. So I'm now on a diet. <laughs> it is so it's nothing simple. But but uh, I, I, I think the lesson I would say to come back to your question, though, is you not carpe diem, because carpe diem in the classic sense meant live only for the day. And of course, I've talked about living the long-term goods and suffering pain short-term for long-term goods. 
So I'm not carpe diem in that sense. But intensely enjoy each day. Intensely enjoy each person you meet. Intensely enjoy each activity you do. Notice the beauty in the people you encounter. And try to see them as they are in the world. On the way up to Yankee Stadium last night, there was an obviously disturbed person in a crowded subway car. It was very interesting. It was a very large, tall male and a relatively small uh, but very beautiful woman. And they were at each other. And I went through the mental exercise. They, they, they stayed on the train all the way up. They got up at Yankee Stadium. They were not going to the Yankee game, I guarantee that. But they were having across the subway car a really heated argument between two people that didn't know each other about who looked at each other, uh, who looked at the other first and in what way and so forth and so on. And, and I just used it as a mental exercise to go through. First of all, I was ready at some point to intervene if necessary uh, by getting between them. Because, you know, if you don't have that much longer to live, you have a, a might as well invest in yourself. But, 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 but secondly, I couldn't really figure out which of the two of them had initiated, which of the two of them was out of touch. She, she kept prodding him, and he was crying. I, notice these things. Get try to get in that person. That these are somebody's children, even though they were in their thirties. What brings them to this point? What brings them to this point on the subway? What should society be doing to to aid and abet? Why isn't anybody in the subway car? at least moving between them to block their vision of each other. You know, what's going on here? And I, I, I think one has to, in life, live every moment as intensely as possible, not go to sleep in that moment or put on the earphones and listen to some Dvorak or whatever you listen to. Absolutely. Well, John, it's been absolutely incredible having the opportunity to have this conversation with you and thank you professor O, for making this all happen and bringing this conversation to life and i know we're all very happy that the that you are patient number one for these treatments working and you know i really look forward to the stern community and beyond having the opportunity to hear what we've talked about today and thank you again for the time. Well, thank you for your time. And thank you both for, for being the people you are. And just onward and upward together. <laughs>